0: The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. In nineteen thirty-eight, Dr. Leopoldo Salazar viniegra presented a groundbreaking paper entitled The Myth of Marijuana. His radical approach was aimed at reshaping Mexico's drugs landscape and addressing the root causes of addiction and challenged the conventional wisdom and it led to the decriminalization of all drugs in Mexico. But then, the U.S.'s head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, a man called Harry Anslinger, worked to undermine salazar Viniegra's approach. And this led to the repeal of those drug laws and the closing of the state-run morphine dispensary in Mexico. I'm joined now by someone advocating for the resurrection of this approach to drugs, Associate Professor of History at Arizona State University, Alexandra Avina. Alexandra, good morning.
1: Good morning, Pat. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, I want to read a statement from Dr. Leopoldo Salazar-Viniegra, and he said, It is impossible to break up the traffic in drugs because of the corruption of the police and special agents and also because of the wealth and political influence of some of the traffickers. Now, you might think, yeah, that's true, but who was he and when did he say it?
1: So, Dr. Leopoldo Salazar-Viniegra was a scientist and a doctor, a psychiatrist, who worked in Mexico in the 19, from the 1920s uh, well into the 1940s? Um, he was appointed yeah, after having a, a very illustrious academic career and training. He returned to Mexico in the 1920s, worked at the National University. At the 1930s, he eventually was made head of the Federal Drug Addiction Hospital located within the National Psych- Psychiatry Hospital, um, and there he started to. Developed some really interesting ideas about the true sources of drug addiction um, and thinking about ways to, uh, to challenge the then Mexican government's approach to drugs and drug addiction, which tended to be punitive and tended to focus on prison. Um, Dr. Salazar started to identify ideas that focused more on harm reduction, the language that we use today. Um, when we think about alternative methods to, to drugs and yeah. uh, to dealing with drugs and drug addiction.
0: Now, we tend to think of drug addiction and the drug problem as something from the late 20th century, the 21st century. Uh, people might be surprised to, to know that Mexico had a massive drugs problem back in the 1930s.
1: Yeah. So this is the, the issue of, of, of drugs and illicit drug and, and illicit drug addiction goes well back into the late 19th, early 20th century. And there's been global efforts to control illicit drug trade beginning with, with opium in the early 20th century. So Mexico is uh, the site of the, one of the world's first, if not the world's first great social peasant revolutions of the 20th century. And during that revolution, you started to see the dispersal of or the spread of drug use, particularly marijuana use, away from the military barracks and the prisons, uh, to become a more regular, commonplace uh, usage in particularly in urban society and and in different Mexican cities. So in the 1920s, uh, the, the post-revolutionary Mexican government started to enact a series of really punitive, harsh anti-drug uh, criminalization efforts. Uh, they had they were tinged with racism. They had uh, a particular forms of eugenic thinking and logic that went into These laws that tended to target dark-skinned working-class Mexican citizens, Um, by the time that opium gets outlawed in Mexico in the late 1920s, that also serves as an excuse to go after uh, the Chinese community, uh, nearly 30,000 people who lived in Mexico at the time. So so Mexico, um, like other countries at the time, had to try to deal with the drug issue in a way that seems very similar to what we've witnessed in the latest iteration of a drug war of the last 20, 30 years, which was police prisons, criminalization, and punitive measures.
0: Now, this pioneering man, Dr. Viniegra, he came up with an idea, which sounds very modern now to our ears, uh, that harm reduction was the way, uh, methadone substitution for heroin, uh, controlling the quality and how people would access drugs effectively through the state. And not alone that, he persuaded the then government to come on side.
1: Yeah, so he, had to, he developed what uh, historian Benjamin Smith refers to as a dialectics of dope. Uh, Dr. Salazar-Vinegra had some, essentially a Marxist approach to thinking about what causes drug addiction and the turn to drugs, and, and he started to focus on broader societal and structural factors that produce an individual's inclinations to use illicit drugs. Um, so he really started analyzing this issue from a broad societal structural factor and he started to see that he developed this really interesting theory that, um, you know, poor working class uh, drug uh, users were uh, the victims of a sort of double exploitation. Um, one at the hands of the state that, that criminalized the use of drugs, but they were also being exploited by these drug traffickers who were charging really high prices for the illicit product that they were selling. So. By the late 1930s, early 1940s, by that time, Dr. Salazar was the drug czar, essentially the drug czar of, of, of the Mexican government during the President Lázaro Cárdenas administration. And he started to develop this idea that, one, they should decriminalize all, if not most, drugs. And two, this idea of setting up a, a morphine, a state-run dispensary to be sold at cheap, low prices to people who use drugs as a way to undercut the economic power of drug traffickers who control the trade in Mexico City in 1939 and
0: 1940, and the government was tending to go along with this new and novel approach, but then the Americans got involved.
1: Yes, so th- th- this, is, this is a complicated story. But to, to make things uh, to make these things, things a little less complicated, um, so Doctor salasabi Salasabi-Negra, once he becomes the head of the Drug Law of Mexico by, by 1938. He starts presenting this idea about the state-run morphine dispensary. He presents it in, um, in the Mexican media. In 1939, some of his collaborators presented it at the United Nations. Um, and by the, and the, so the Americans already had known that there was some radical thinking happening in Mexico. They actually had tried to get the doctor removed from his position by pressuring the Mexican government, which uh, they failed in doing so. So this program of having one state-run morphine dispensary actually gets implemented in early 1940, and it would last several months. But eventually it becomes – the Mexican government radically changes course. It shutters the the morphine dispensary by the mid-1940s, and we now know that it was a result of essentially a form of blackmail uh, or um, pressure from the U.S. government, particularly – the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, a man, an infamous man by the name of Anslinger. An- an- and what he did was pressure the U.S. government to cut its sale of uh, legal med- medicinal morphine to Mexico. Mexico sourced most of its morphine, not all, from the United States. So this, drug, this American drug czar, Anslinger, convinced the, Me- the United States government to cut the supply off to Mexico This caused massive shortages in Mexico. People in hospitals who needed morphine for other reasons could not get it. It created chaos. And that essentially forced the the Mexican government to reverse course and to shut down Dr. Salazar Vinegra's radical experiment. Um, He interestingly later on would blame not the Americans per se, but he said it was a consequence of Mexico's disastrous electoral politics because 1940 was a presidential year. Um, And we also know now, thanks to the work of historians like Isaac Campos, that Uh, Mexican diplomats also really failed to convince and to communicate these ideas to a global audience and not just focusing on trying to get the favor of the United States. Now,
0: now, one of the calculations that uh, is made is the cost of uh, the war on drugs, which he decided was not a war on drugs, rather a war on the poor. And if all of the money that is spent on trying to uh, detect the illegal importation of drugs and trying to track down the cartels and so on, if that was used just to directly help the poor rather than fight the drugs war, that it might be better for those uh, who might be tempted into addiction.
1: Right. I think he was way ahead of his time in this regard. I think he, for one, recognizes you uh, correctly say that the war on drugs is essentially a war on poor people. And if we were able to use those resources in a different way, essentially, you know, to put it simply, to, to create a better society with jobs, with health care with housing, with everyone's basic needs being met, as opposed to waging uh, a, a punitive war militarized war on drugs with carceral solutions for, for people's decision to use drugs, you know, that would be a, a more humane, a more just way of approaching this issue, with the end goal being of creating a more fair, more just society. And I think he, he was ahead of his time. I think the way that uh, those of us who advocate for harm reduction or, and, and move away from police and, and militarized drug wars, um, you know, we've really learned a lot from the radical ideas of this, of this Mexican doctor who was way ahead of his time in the late 1930s and the early 1940s. Essentially, he's asking us to think about how do we create a better society that then can mitigate or render useless people's decision to use illicit drugs. As a form of a, as a colleague here of mine in Arizona would say, as a quick Benjamin Fong, as a quick fix, as a quick fix to try to deal with broader structural political inequalities that are have become main, you know, uh, central to the way that these unjust societies run and operate today.
0: And the idea of maybe the farmers getting paid a proper wage to produce the crops that would uh, then be turned into, if you like, state-sanctioned uh, drugs. And that would free them from the effects of, of the drug traffickers and the criminals?
1: Yeah, that, would be, that would be a very radical move. And there was, there was at least in Mexico in the, in the 2010s, particularly when the current president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, was campaigning for president in 2018, there was this radical idea being discussed that um, the opium poppy farmers, uh, the, the people who up in the mountains of Mexico are growing the flowers, that are then processed into uh, opium paste and heroin. Uh, there was this radical idea that what if we, essentially what if these farmers started growing their product for the state and then the state could create some sort of national company that used these goods to produce morphine and other opiates that are deemed medically necessary for the people of Mexico instead of buying those drugs from transnational pharmaceutical corporations. Um, that would have been a, an extremely radical solution had it been implemented. Um, because these drug, these peasant farmers are, to, to go back to Dr. Salazar they too are at the clutches of the drug traffickers. They are also, in my view of, of, of reading this history and researching it, they are also victims of, of, of these drug traffickers who serve essentially as a, as a middle person to, to take product to, to, to market and to sell and to make most of the profit off of goods that are being produced by people, grown by people in the mountains of Mexico. Uh, one of the one of the aside from very difficult political factors, something that that really undercuts the solution is really the crash of the of the heroin market in Mexico and the United States by 2016 2017, and the rise of fentanyl. Um, and this is still an issue that in at, at Mexico and the United States we're dealing with today. Fentanyl has really started to dominate the illicit drug market, and that has that has radically changed the structure of of the political economy of illicit narcotics in 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 the Americas.
0: So the the question would be, what do you do? about fentanyl which is easy to manufacture and cheap to manufacture and is so destructive
1: exactly i think as with any drug so i think there is something a little there is something different with fentanyl particularly when it, with regards to its lethality um we've had tens of thousands of overdose drug deaths in the united states in the last couple of years and most the overwhelming majority have been linked to fentanyl so i think that is something different in regard to other illicit drugs But I think we still have to deal with that the way that we would deal with other illicit drugs. I think that's what Dr. Salazar-Vinegra would counsel us to do. And that is to focus on the demand side. First, to implement harm reduction uh, public health policies to help uh, individuals who see a need or a desire to use illicit drugs like fentanyl. You know, something really easy that some American cities have started to roll out is the use of testing strips because fentanyl has contaminated the supply of all illicit drugs. And people, some people are inadvertently uh, hurting themselves uh, when they take a drug that they expect to be something like cocaine, but it's been contaminated with fentanyl. So something as simple as testing strips could help mitigate that at a very, uh, you know, very individual, local level. But I still think that we need to think about this on a broader societal scale, the way that Dr. Salazar-Vinegra uh, was trying to do in the late 30s and early 40s, and to think about the broader structural factors that lead individuals to use these illicit drugs and then to think about what sort of factors cause this illicit nature to begin with. Think about why other drugs like caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine are not deemed illegal or illicit, but things like uh, cocaine and heroin um, and, and still in some parts marijuana are deemed uh, illicit. And that's a political story that has nothing to do with science. That is a very political story.
0: Um, you say that the Mexican drug trafficking organizations, they're more like transnational corporations uh, than uh, cartels, because you have a, a, an image of uh, some drug baron holed up in some uh, villa somewhere in the mountains. But these are international business people. And you suggest that if you know they close down one market by doing exactly what you recommend, uh, harm reduction, maybe state supply of certain drugs, that they'll respond by selling something else to their market, as they have done with marijuana, where if the state supply in a particular area of America is of a particular quality and a particular strength, they just boost the strength in their supply and create another demand, an illegal demand.
1: Yes, and in, in some cases, that's exactly right. And in some cases, like in the United States in the early 2000s, sometimes they'll help, they're helped out by pharmaceutical companies that have created a market for, for opioids because uh, something like oxycodone has become a mass-produced, mass-used uh, narcotic. Right? So sometimes you have the, the convergence uh, of uh, these transnational uh, drug illicit drug court, drug trafficking organizations with uh, illicit pharmaceutical companies that, that feed off of one another in really strange and destructive ways. But yes, it, it, I think the first step, and I think this is what Dr. tried to do in, in, in 1930 and 1940, the first step would, it, would have to necessarily consist of decriminalizing all illicit drugs as a way to start controlling the supply and start to regulate the supply and the quality of those illicit drugs. Because as precisely as you signal, if we're only doing this piecemeal one drug at a time, these, these drug trafficking organizations will just simply shift their focus on different uh, uh, commodities and, and, and products that they can then sell and boost to, to different markets. In Mexico, they've also diversified their economic oper- uh, uh, activities to things like illicit mining. Um, they have, for the last 10, 15 years, they, they, they have operated as like racketeers and rent seekers at the local level. So they'll, they'll charge local businesses, they'll extort local businesses, they'll extort uh, individual family homes just for, for the, just because they exist in an area or a zone of operation that is controlled by a particular drug trafficking organization. Right. So again, the drug issue is going to, serve almost as a window into broader social, economic, political problems that currently affect all of Mexican and United States society, if, we, if we're still thinking within the context that Dr. Salazar-Niaga was thinking
0: uh, about. I, I suppose the final question about the decriminalization of all drugs is uh, the, the question of letting a genie out of the bottle. I mean, who knows? You, you can't maybe criminalize alcohol now or caffeine or uh, some of the other things you mentioned. Um you let the drugs out of the bottle, and that genie will not go back in, and you have a generation of people who are destroyed by drugs. What do you say to that contention?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, this, for one, my, my first response would be the, the current policy now has already destroyed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. Right? So the war on drugs, at least the way it's been waged the last 40 years, regionally and globally, has been a massive failure and it has resulted in massive displacement, suffering, ecological catastrophe. So already what has, been doing, what has been done has been a massive catastrophe for peoples around the world, particularly in the global south and um, you know, street level dealers and, and users in, in the global north. Um, so I think, but it is a wager, right? And the wager would be, and this is Dr. Salazar-Viniega's wager, that to decriminalize all drugs would allow states to control to bring into the light, to control, to surveil, to monitor these once deemed illicit drugs as a way to kind of uh, wrap their arms around the problem, to speak metaphorically. But it's also the, the wager that if you improve society, if you reduce the inequalities, if you reduce the inaccessibility of, 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 of jobs where people re- receive a, a just return for their label, labor, if you re- if you reduce essentially certain levels of exploitation and increase people's access to things like health care and housing, then perhaps that can also lead to a reduction in people's need to use some of these illicit drugs as a as a quick fix or as a way to deal with broader social economic mm. inequality. I mean that's the big wager. Yeah. Fine. And um
0: sorry Finally, Alexander, you've been reading, I'm sure, about the drugs bust off the Irish coast, where it's estimated that the wholesale value of the cocaine seized on board the M.V. Matthew was uh, perhaps 500,000 euro, uh, closer to 600,000 million dollars. What are the implications of that seizure?
1: That's a massive seizure. And I think it's really interesting that this seizure occurred off the coast of Ireland. I know, you know, cocaine is, 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 Cocaine has saturated saturated the the North American market, and this is why Europe has become such a site for cocaine uh, smuggling in the last five to ten years. But what's interesting to me is that usually you have these type of quote-unquote motherships that are just full of of drugs, and then you have little ships that take off from it and take drugs off in different directions in Europe. Usually this is happening in places like Rotterdam or Antwerp. So this is, I think this particular incident that just occurred in Ireland is, it shows a couple of things. One, it shows a high degree of coordination amongst more than a, probably likely more than a dozen transnational drug trafficking organizations. This boat originated in the Southern Caribbean. It's most likely linked to Colombian uh, drug trafficking organizations um, that were involved in coordinating the shipment with a bunch of different European uh, drug trafficking syndicates and criminal syndicates. And reading the stories and catching up on the stories, it seems like the idea was to use the relatively unguarded waters of, of Ireland as a way to, as almost like a mobile base from which they could then distribute the cocaine to different parts of Europe, uh, each criminal criminal syndicate working to take its share and to take it to its particular European market. Um, but I think this is a big story that, that requires um, a lot of attention. And I think it's, whenever you have this type of increased illicit economic activity, you're going to have an increase in violence. And we've already seen that in places like Antwerp and Rotterdam, right? So I think this is something that requires massive attention. And again, I think it requires a type of rethinking that Dr. was advocating in the late 30s, early 40s. Um,
0: who will pay the price for that seizure, do you think?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. That's a, that's a difficult question to ask. I mean, I'm sure that... Um, it depends on the type of degree and coordination and, and alliances that were established by these different criminal syndicates that were involved in this operation. Um, so, you know, it, it, right now, it, it's really hard to see who's going to pay the price. Um, and we'll see what happens. The, we'll start to see the fallout, I think, in the next month or so.
0: All right. But uh, probably lives might be lost on foot of it. Uh, Alexander Avinia, Associate Professor of History at Arizona State University, thank you very much for joining us on the program.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you.
0: Mm, I I may have said uh, 500,000, I should have said 500 million uh, euro, the wholesale value of that haul. It's a no-brainer, says the texter. The war on drugs has failed. Legalising marijuana alone would cripple the gangs and free up the guards to tackle real crime. Well, cocaine seems to be uh, the drug of choice these days. And now, still to come on News Talk, an alarming survey reveals high rates of abuse targeting doctors. But next, the Ryder Cup in...